Next moment, the luggage, the seat, the platform, and the station had completely vanished. The four children, holding hands and panting, found themselves standing in a woody place, such a woody place that branches were sticking into them, and there was hardly any room to move. They all rubbed their eyes and took a deep breath. Oh, Peter, exclaimed Lucy, do you think we can possibly have got back to Narnia? It might be anywhere, said Peter. I can't see a yard in all these trees. Let's try to get into the open, if there is any open. With some difficulty and with some stings from nettles and pricks from thorns, they struggled out of the thicket. Then they had another surprise. Everything became much brighter, and after a few steps, they found themselves at the edge of the wood, looking down on a sandy beach. A few yards away, a very calm sea was falling on the sand with such tiny ripples that it made hardly any sound. There was no land in sight, and no clouds in the sky. The sun was about where it ought to be at ten o'clock in the morning, and the sea was dazzling blue. They stood sniffing the sea smell. By Jove, said Peter, this is good enough. Five minutes later, everyone was barefooted and waiting in the cool, clear water. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour. I am Chris Pipkin, and we have a new guest co-host with us this week. This is Mr. Logan Huggins. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to dive into Prince Caspian, and uh, yeah, been a big fan of the show for a long time. Logan reached out to us, said he'd like to come on the show, and we were excited to have him. He also, by the way, if you've noticed an uptick in the audio quality, that's his doing. And we are so grateful for that, and I am so grateful for that because that's usually me that has to do that, and it takes forever. Uh, so thank you. No, of course, of course. And again, I feel like I'm in a very safe position because if this podcast turns out great, wonderful, we'll have two people talking about Prince Caspian. But if not, I'll just edit all my stuff out and you'll just be sitting here talking about Prince Caspian by yourself. There you go. There you go. There you um, go. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Have you, by the way, ever ever seen uh, Garfield without Garfield? <laughs> no, I haven't. So there's a, there's a website <laughs> called Garfield without Garfield that has Garfield and Odie edited out. So it's just like the existential. Just um, John. Yeah, yeah just John know. Arbuckle talking to himself. <laughs> it's wonderful. That makes sense. Knowing what I know about what the internet has done to Garfield over the past several years. That oh doesn't my gosh. Surprise me. Doesn't yeah. surprise me the least. Yeah. yeah. That's a tangent for another time, I guess. Uh, yes. Logan, stop me if you've heard this one. A young orphan with a special destiny is raised and mistreated by his uncle and aunt, both of whom favor their own son over him and hate the fantastic. In secret, the boy develops a penchant for magic and is inducted by his teachers into a strange new world full of strange creatures and otherworldly portals on train platforms. I'm talking, of course about C.S. Lewis's second Narnian book, Prince Caspian. For a little bit there, I thought you were going into Star Wars, but when you said train oh. station, I was like, oh, no, I see where you're going here. And I was trying to mislead people into thinking that I was talking about... Harry Potter, of course. Harry Potter. Uh, well, that's a, it's one of those great narrative devices to mm -hmm. kick off a story, kill the parents, and leave an orphan with their aunt and uncle who mistreat them. Yep. I, there's a wide list of narrative stories that probably start off that way. So yeah, yep. we're, in, yep. we're in good company. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. 
when did you first read Prince Caspian? What were what were kind of your your first impressions of the book? Totally. Well, I have to admit something. I am one of those weirdos and unfortunate souls that actually saw the movie first back in 2008. From C.S. Lewis's epic masterpiece. The fate of Narnia depends on you. This Christmas. I had seen the first movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I was like, okay, that's cool. I see where they're going here. I remember watching the, the second one, Prince Caspian, and I remember being so bored with it because so much of it was that typical sort of Hollywood grossness that sort of Hollywood puts on all of its movie adaptations. Yeah. Who are you? I am Prince Caspian. All that you know is about to change. It was not and, a great uh, movie. It was not a great movie. And, but yeah, uh, unfortunately, that was my first exposure to it. And I remember years later, when I got a hold of the actual books and started going through the books, I remember sort of dreading it, thinking like, oh, this is the one where they have that weird rivalry between Peter and Caspian. <laughs> and there's this weird like romance between Susan and Caspian. I remember as I got through the book, I was like so pleasantly surprised none of that's in the book. That's yeah. all sort of that Hollywood glaze that they have to put on everything to sort of movify it. Yeah. And so I was so pleasantly surprised that the, the book is nothing like the movie and uh, it's very un-Hollywood and I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about it in this episode. It's a very weird story. It's a very odd sort of follow-up to Lion, mm-hmm. Witch, and Wardrobe. In a way, I can see why the directors or the producers, whoever tried to jazz it up because it is such an odd sort of format for a story and I'm yeah. sure we'll get into it. But yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I actually read the book for the first time thinking this is not Hollywood at all, but it's still very much C.S. Lewis. Yeah, it is an awkward adolescent sequel. And I say that not that it's not like necessarily for adolescents, but just as in the movie, there were a few awkward adolescents who were, you know, exploring their weird feelings for each other. So in the book, it's sort of the process of Lewis making what was a single book into kind of a series and and sort of trying to explore this world and create this world and figure out what it's even about. It's a strange book for sure. I really like it though. And the more I think about it, of course, the more I like it. Um, Yeah, same. I think you're totally right on. And I think it's interesting to see just the structure of it, the story of Prince Caspian. It's such an odd start because the children get pulled into Narnia. We're like, okay, that's sort of usual. They come back into Narnia. They have a little bit of an adventure. And then we sort of have to tell a story inside the story of this is who Prince Caspian is. This is who the Telmarines are. This is who this is. That's great. And it's an interesting, intriguing story. And obviously C.S. Lewis is such a gifted, talented writer. He could he makes that story interesting and worthwhile listening to. But man, I realized the, the book's what, like 14, 15 chapters long? And the action doesn't start until like chapter 10 or 11. It's yeah. so so much buildup and reframing and let me catch you up to what happened over the past 1500 years or whatever. It's such an odd structure of a story. Yeah, I noticed that with Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe too, even though it works a little bit better in some ways, there's tons and tons of buildup and philosophical sort of ramblings about other worlds and you know, Edmund being a jerk and and build up, build up, build up, build up. And then finally, the action at the end happens in like one chapter. Right. Um, I reread Line the Witch and Wardrobe in preparation for this podcast. And I remember thinking like, wait, we didn't even see the battle. We, when the battle's happening, we're following Aslan doing what he does. And then we sort of rejoin the battle at the very end when Aslan comes in and saves the day. I just remember thinking, wait, I thought there was this great big awesome battle scene. I, what I, I guess yeah. what I was me- remembering was Prince Caspian. But so, yeah. it's such a, I'm sure it's obviously intentional by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. 
definitely speaks to, and I think part of your being pleasantly surprised that the book was not like the Prince Caspian movie, it speaks to the kind of um, disjunction between sort of Hollywood values and what Hollywood thinks makes a good story. Lots of big battle scenes with lots of CGI, you know, and, uh, and romance and conflict. And then what Lewis decides to do, right, which is, which is just a, a different sort of thing. Yeah, and I'm sure you and your classes have talked to your students about narratives and how stories are told. You have to be sort of a grand storyteller like C.S. Lewis to write a story where the first 10 chapters are sort of set up. Out of a 15-chapter book, the first two-thirds of it are set up and set up, and we're just stumbling along. We're having, you know, there's stuff happening, and there's important things happening. Any lesser author was sort of given to the temptation to have an inciting incident and be like, all right, we need to have a battle up here, and then maybe like Mm -hmm. a chase scene through here. And But C.S. Lewis, as wise as he is and how intentionally, there's a reason why he does that, I think, which is what we're going to get into. Just seeing my son start reading, there are so many newer books that have realized they really have to compete with a lot of other forms of entertainment. And so they're going to try to hook you right from the beginning. You can afford to be slower in older books because there's not much else that you're really competing with, right? Um, So children's literature, up until the time that Lewis was writing and and even after, it could just afford to go at a slower pace. What are the children going to do? They're going to watch TV? No. They could go play outside, right? Or play sports or something like that, right? If they don't have joints in their thumbs like Lewis did and couldn't play sports. So you can just afford to get a lot more philosophical and meandering and just kind of um, sometimes weird. Yeah. And it's that slow burn. Like like you mentioned, a lot of that's lost on the modern media because like you said, any movie or video game or story that's being told now, it's like, bang, right out of the gate and it's trying to hook you. But there's sort of that lost art that we see in Tolkien and we see in Lewis and so many of these older artists of that slow burn of the story building over time. And it's great. That we all want those payoffs at the end of our stories. We want that conclusion. We want that sort of a catharsis. But like mm-hmm. in a story like Caspian, where it builds up literally so long, to me at least to such a a fulfilling ending because of that not in spite of it absolutely I wanted to get your perspective on this. I sort of had this weird revelation. There's a weird sort of connection to the biblical books in the New Testament. Stick with me if this is too far of a stretch. But if the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is equal to the Gospels, you know, in the sense of narratively laying out the main characters, Aslan hits the scene, victory is won, Aslan creates kings and queens— the main thrust of what the whole Narnian story is about is sort of boiled down into that first book of Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. If Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe is the Gospels, then I would like to theorize that Prince Caspian equates the book of Acts or maybe even the whole New Testament. The reason where I came to that conclusion was when I went through Prince Caspian a time or two, I just remember seeing this huge picture of community, like this, the C.S. Lewis is constantly giving us all these different examples and pictures of a diverse, huge body of people and characters all working together under the head of Aslan, under the mission of Aslan, but they're making decisions and they're trying to lead and they're graciously trying to like, 
give advice. There's so much talking in this book, and there's so many characters in this book. The list of characters from Land of the Witch Wardrobe, you know, pretty long, but the list of named characters in Caspian is probably mm-hmm. twice as long. There's a ton of characters, and it's so cool that C.S. Lewis gives them all something to do. All these characters are playing all these different roles, and they really are sort of forming that whole classic sort of biblical idea of many parts in one body sort of that thing that you see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the whole New Testament. So I I know we'll get into it. I don't want to dive too deep into it right off the bat, but I just was super excited to realize I was like, oh my gosh, there's this weird sort of biblical connection. Like if the line of which wardrobe sets it up, like the gospel does, then Prince Caspian is sort of a mix of like, okay, Aslan sort of won the victory. Now let's see the body work together and accomplish or attempt to accomplish the mission of Aslan as sort of this big, messy body of person. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. That's that's really interesting. And there are interesting parallels to the book of Acts. Well, uh, if the if the last battle is Revelation, which it pretty much is, yeah. the last battle will be Revelation. And then, was that, five books? You know, they're probably a continuation mm-hmm. of that idea, a body working together and Edmund and Lucy and the Dawn Treader and the Silver Chair and all those other words. I'm sure they fit in there somewhere too, but as for our discussion on Prince Gaspard, I thought, oh, this might be fun to... Yeah, yeah. no, I, I like that a lot. And I like, especially how you're emphasizing the very diverse crowd all working together, right? Like you've got mice and giants and dwarves. You got um, dwarves, you got red dwarves, you got black dwarves, you got half dwarves. Mm-hmm. You got, like you said, giants and centaurs and all these tree spirits and river spirits. Oh my gosh, it's a party. And it's like yeah. such a crazy big i think it's neat and that's the thing they don't all they don't get it right right off the front they make decisions they lose the battle you know like they have hiccups along the way Mm -hmm. and they they still sort of have grace with each other and have there's a huge theme of honor in this book of giving honor to one another and encouraging one another and giving counsel and i'm sorry that didn't work out please forgive me you know like that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff over and over and over again like this book is just a huge knot of examples of giving grace to one another which is really cool yeah 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 i like that a lot i know that lewis finished it before the lion lich in the wardrobe was published well i think that's uh, I do think there's something interesting we could probably pull out of that. They always say the hardest thing is not making a hit record. It's making a second hit record. Yep. That sort of idea of like, oh, shoot, the first book was a huge success. How do I follow it up? Yep. And it's neat to know that C.S. Lewis was already working on sequels and follow-up books before the first book was even out. It just shows how intentional he meant to build it that way. He didn't have that pressure of following up The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe because it wasn't even out yet. I, I did read something interesting about the odd part at the very end but um, and how that may have been a response to one of Tolkien's complaints about The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but we'll, we'll get to oh, that. Oh, really? Interesting um, in that, yeah. Most of the currently published editions of the Narnia books, either as like a whole big tome or as separate books, uh, place Prince Caspian fourth. It causes no end of confusion for like people like my son <laughs> when I'm like, no, don't read it that way. <laughs> read the Light of the Wardrobe first. Um, it's it's nice to know that even in the Chronicles of Narnia fandom, there is a Greedo shot first, Han shot first type mm-hmm, controversy, mm-hmm. and it's the order of the book. Yeah, most um, most scholars that I've heard, of course, it might just be that this is what they grew up with, but most scholars that I've heard are, are pretty emphatic about you need to read it second. It was written second, and I'm very much in this camp as well. The reason why Lewis is still very much figuring out what Narnia is like, um, and you're going to be annoyed by the sort of, like I said before, adolescent quality of this book. Uh, and, And by adolescent, I just mean like everything is still maturing. If you've read some of his more mature Narnia 
works already, like the magician's nephew and the horse and his boy. Lewis has figured out exactly what Narnia is by that point, and Prince Caspian and Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, he had not quite yet. They're still really interesting books, but it's going to be distracting if, you know, there's one rule for talking beasts and non-talking beasts in uh, The Magician's Nephew, and then another rule about how beasts become talking or not in uh, in, in Prince Caspian. You're totally right, and yeah, I agree with you. It, it dovetails very nicely right after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because yeah, even the narrator who I forget how present the narrator is in these stories. Like mm-hmm. this isn't a book that you're reading and you feel like, oh, this is, I'm reading a book. When you read this book, you really do feel like you're listening to someone tell you the story. Like yeah. the, the, Lewis is a very present narrator in all these books. It's just funny. These little asides he throws in there of like, you can read about it in the last book or, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's very sort of casual and off the cuff, which makes it so much fun to read. I think. Yeah. But yeah. It, I think even that sort of points to the whole theory of like, okay, this is the second book and you should read it following the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Yeah. He's not going to reference things that happened in The Magician's Nephew or in The Horse <laughs> right. and His Boy exactly. uh, because they haven't yet. Uh, in, in so I'm glad, we, I'm glad we solved that. And uh, any yep. scholars can write in to the Inklings Variety Hour at gmail.com. Send your complaints to Chris. He will be happy to answer all of your. That's right. That's right. Let's talk about the frame narrative of this story. And by frame narrative, I just mean the part that gets narrated before there's another story that's told to the character. It's the end of the holidays. The Pavenses, uh, who are Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, formerly for Kings and Queens of Narnia, now um, children coming back from a holiday and uh, they're waiting at a train station. They get sucked suddenly into Narnia. It, apparently, it like hurts because they're they're all kind of like, "Ow!" They don't know that it's Narnia yet. However, instead, it seems to be the seashore, and they proceed exactly as children would in an adventure novel about being marooned on an island. Finally, just as they're getting concerned about going hungry, they find an overgrown orchard next to a wall and lean up against it. Uh, in the next chapter, the children realize that the orchard and walls are the ruins of Care Paravel from which they used to rule Narnia. And they've been gone for like 1,300 years or, or so. They find their old treasures, Peter's sword, Lucy's cordial, and Susan's bow, but not her horn, which has the quality of being able to summon help whenever it's blown. Edmund didn't get a treasure. In, in and, you can, first, and you can read book. about it in the last yeah. book. But he does at least have an electric torch, at least till the end of this book. The children end up res- rescuing a red-bearded dwarf who's being drowned by two men in a boat. Um, they shoot the men, but don't kill them. The, the dwarf talks to them a bit, telling them that he serves Caspian, and they're all like, who's Caspian? And so he proceeds with his story about Caspian. And the real story begins. Yeah. Three yes. chapters in, we hear yes. our main character, which is such an odd choice. Yeah. yeah. I imagine he did that on purpose because if you were a fan of Narnia and you, you you enjoyed the first book and you bought the second book, you open it up and you have to just jump right in with, here's Prince Caspian and here's Dr. Quinn. And you're like, right. where's the children at? Where, where, what happened yeah. to that last book? So here's your main characters from the last book. They're back in Narnia. And then here's the story I want to tell. Yeah. Would you would you agree with that? I think so. I think I think that's a um explanation for it. I think at least part of what seems to be going on, if I could be like really metafictional here, is that Lewis is sort of figuring out how to write a sequel about a book that maybe he envisioned as sort of a one-off book before. So he knows he has to have the same characters. And he probably has the idea of Caspian in mind, but these characters are just sort of like wandering around, almost like waiting for something to happen. There's this Narnia of the past that they're like 
kind of trying to reckon with and get back to, right? But it's also been a really long time. If you've ever tried to write fiction, if you try to put your mind back in the place where it was when you were beginning a story and you try to finish up the story sort of somewhere else, maybe months later or whatever else, it takes a lot of doing and a lot of times it's impossible or very hard to sort of recreate the same setting correctly in your mind. So I, I wonder if this isn't Lewis reckoning with, with this a bit, the fact that he's trying to write a sequel to this book that he knows is good, even though it hasn't been published yet. As his mind wanders about trying to figure out ways in, the children are also sort of like wandering about trying to find ways in that that might be um uh, a bit a bit too much but it's but it's just interesting that this is a sequel about a sequel based on narnia but it's about trying to get back to old narnia and yeah. caspian too is trying to get back to old narnia as well in his own way yeah um, it's definitely that idea of like uh, caspian's sort of goal is not to set up a new narnia but sort of restore that idea of previous narnia sort of like make things back the way they were Another thing that is that is really yeah that's really bizarre about these first three chapters is Lewis kind of imagining what it would be like to have been grown up already. Mm -hmm. um, so they keep thinking back to oh yeah remember back when we were adults you know <laughs> and we were we were kings and queens here even though now we're children again. He doesn't he doesn't get too distracted by this idea but uh, it's really odd it's really interesting um, how, mm -hmm. the, how the children are are sort of you know they're stepping back into this place where they were old but they're not old anymore that's a really good point and i think it's interesting because it reminds me of those i think there's a few moments sprinkled through and it might be law in the witch wardrobe it might be this book i forget but there's almost these moments of when they're in narnia they forget about england like i think edmund or someone's like back from that other place we used to live what was it called oh yeah england you know like mm -hmm. it's almost as if they have to sort of reacclimate themselves to narnia and it sort of once the more they're in narnia the less they think about the old world and you know once they're in the real world they sort of slowly forget about narnia it's it's such a yeah. they don't just jump back in, in and out so quickly that probably like the the way the movie showed it but it you sort of always hear those effects of the air of narnia changes them or it, yeah. it gave it made them more valiant or more kingly or whatever yeah like, like the land that you step into it's not just you changing it but it changes you Right. Absolutely, that's for um, sure. And it's kind of a it's kind of a reverse Neverland effect in, in that like in Neverland like you do forget who you were, but you stay young all the time. But in in Narnia like you can apparently just grow up in Narnia, but yeah, you also forget there, right? Um, yeah. When they had drunk from the well and splashed their faces, they all went down the stream again to the shore and stared at the channel which divided them from the mainland. We'll have to swim, said Edmund. It would be all right for Sue, said Peter. Susan had won prizes for swimming at school. But I don't know about the rest of us. By the rest of us, he really meant Edmund, who couldn't yet do two lengths at the school baths, and Lucy, who could hardly swim at all. Anyway, said Susan, there may be currents. Father says it's never wise to bathe in a place you don't know. But Peter, said Lucy, look here. I know I can't swim for nuts at home, in England, I mean. But couldn't we all swim long ago, if it was long ago, when we were kings and queens in Narnia? We could ride then, too, and do all sorts of things, don't you think? Ah, but we were sort of grown up then, said Peter. 
We reigned for years and years and learned to do things. Aren't we just back at our proper ages again now? This is, again, them kind of coming to grips with the fact that they are young again. And they used to be old and they used to be able to do all these things. And, and like, of course, as time goes by in Narnia, they um, slowly learn to do those things again. And it comes back to them. And I, I wonder if I wonder if they're somehow also like growing up faster. Right. Or if they just kind of stay the same age, but they get those old abilities or, or, or what exactly. I almost like it that they're they're still in their children's bodies they're still coming back as their proper ages but their identity is still the kings and queens of narnia like that's the title that they have that's the sort of honor that they have and that the that's still the position aslan gave them and i wonder if you can sort of like even connect that to that christian ideal of we are sons and daughters of god and we are heirs in the kingdom of god the kingdom of god has come we have all those sort of rights and privileges of that but definitely put them in the bounds of their preteen, teenager body still and i think that's an interesting dynamic there yeah yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, that's very that's very sort of similar to, you know, the disciples having experiences like various miracles and things like that, but then, you know, not see Still. the new heavens and the new earth brought down, you know, right. ultimately, right? Um, even if they see it in visions and things like that. Yeah, um, it's, it's just an interesting dynamic. And I think C.S. Lewis sort of dropped seeds of that throughout the whole book. Like, again, that, you get this whole yeah. idea of like, yeah, they, they are royalty even though they look like they're like 11 years old or 12, you know, however old Edmund and Lucy are. And also how different would this story be if they came back as adults? Yeah, like, I was thinking about that too. That would take away so much of the story of like how yeah. they're leading and how they're interacting with one another. Like, yeah, it, it adds so much flavor to the story because they come back as teenagers. Yeah. I wonder if Lewis thought at all about doing that and about just having them be grown-ups as soon as they got there or if he just kind of ruled that out from the outset like no that's a non-starter that'd be a bad idea you know it's also probably good that they weren't talking the way that they were talking by the time they left narnia right uh, sounding like characters from mallory let us alight from our horses yes mm -hmm. let us alight from our horses i agree let us alight from our horses yeah. i'm like yeah. get off your horses gracious <laughs> yeah 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 he's he's imitating um the style of mallory who is a little bit more eloquent than he needed to be um, in places and also a little more repetitive. But Lewis loved playing around with that sort of style of, right? He would write letters to other people in that style and they would write back to him in the same style as like a game. So, uh, so yeah, he, and, and, and you get just a little bit of it later on in this book. So, so the dwarf that they befriend and save tells the story of this uh of this caspian right and and interestingly like considering that this is about someone finding out that fairy tales are true this beginning reads a little bit like a fairy tale um yeah, he's raised by his rather unlikable uncle, Miraz. He's enchanted from the nursery by stories. His nurse tells him about the good old days in Narnia before all the humans moved in, uh, when there were such things as talking beasts, fawns, dryads, and competent human rulers. Miraz flies into a rage 
and fires Caspian's nurse, hiring in her place a tutor named Dr. Cornelius, who can teach Caspian sensible, practical lessons in how to be a ruler. But Dr. Cornelius, it turns out, is part dwarf, and he also tells Caspian that not only are the nurse's tales true, but he himself should do something to restore Narnia as it was. One night, Dr. Cornelius wakes Caspian up and tells him he must flee because the queen, who is named Pruna Prismia, has just had a son, and Miraz, who has killed Caspian's father, will probably now want to kill Caspian. So Caspian rides off in the dead of night. He's knocked unconscious by a tree branch, wakes up in a den of two dwarves, Trumpkin, a nice but skeptical dwarf, and Nicobrick, who's just not a nice dwarf at all, and also a badger named Truffle Hunter. After deciding not to kill him, even after they find out he's the rightful king of Narnia, they take him around to raise an army against Miraz, full of animals and mythical people like fawns, dwarves, centaurs, etc. Eventually, Caspian's old tutor, Cornelius, joins them, but he tells them that the Telmarine army are coming to crush the rebellion already. They hole up at Aslan's Howe, former stone table site, and after a few battles go very badly for them, they decide to use Susan's horn, which has the virtue that anyone who blows it will receive help. Cornelius, who has brought them the horn, figures that help will either come from the Lantern Waste, where the four children originally came, or Care Paravel, or over the sea. So Trumpkin is sent to Care Paravel, where he's captured and almost killed by Miraz's men. Finally, that whole frame story ends. The children are excited to come help Caspian, but Trumpkin doesn't believe they're really the old kings and queens because he's a bit of an anti-supernaturalist, although he's a good sort. So they have to prove themselves through a series of competitions. Trumpkin is impressed and beaten by Edmund's swordplay and Susan's shooting, but it isn't until Lucy uses her cordial to heal him that he believes in, in them, though he doesn't believe in Aslan yet. Uh, then the five of them row off toward the, uh, toward the mainland. Yeah, did I leave anything out of that summary that, that you feel like was was really important? Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time talking already about how what an interesting start to a story it is. But mm -hmm. fortunately, C.S. Lewis is an enchanting writer and even makes characters telling a story who are also telling a story. He still makes mm -hmm. it interesting and fun to, fun to read and fun to listen to. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, kind of at the end of chapter three. So the dwarf settled down and told his tale. I shall not give it to you in his words, putting in all the children's questions and interruptions, because it would take too long to, and be confusing, and even so, it would leave out some points that the children only heard later. But the gist of the story, as they knew it in the end, was as follows. Like you were saying, I think that's that's it's probably likely that this is the part that he thought of first and wrote first, right? No, uh, I think that's it's likely. You want to write a follow-up to Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and all these readers are expecting, oh great, where did Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter end up and then if they were to start reading the book and like who's prince caspian who's who's this like where's my favorite characters so i think he he mercifully gives us a, a a familiar faces at first and then gets into the story he really wants to tell yeah yeah so we get this narnia that a thousand plus minus years after stuff in lion witch and wardrobe is resolved has another problem um, and that problem is that miraz has suppressed actually all the telmarines even before miraz have suppressed all those sort of magical folk whether it's the talking beasts or fawns and satyrs and dryads and dwarves and and whatnot so just as 
the White Queen had, you know, caused it to be always winter and never Christmas and had sort of a police state going on. Uh, same sort of thing is happening again, except this time there's no magic at all. There's no white witch. It's just nothing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Nothing but cold, hard men that are like just living their naturalistic life. There's no such thing as magic. There's no such thing as lions. What do you make of that? And is Miraz worse than the white witch? Is he better than the white witch? Hmm. Part of me thinks he's not as evil as the white witch because he's not completely directly antagonistic to Aslan. Yeah. He just wants to put himself, let history erase and let, let's forget about the old time. Just forget about that and move on. Whereas the white witch was actively secret police sort of hunting down Aslan supporters. If you were to ask me which one of those is worse, I don't know. They're both pretty terrible. <laughs> they both are very unfriendly to Aslan and his compatriots. What do you think? It's interesting because the, you know, the white witch ruled by magic, you get a sense, you always get a sense that Lewis is, even though he's not trying to write allegory, he has these little, he's got these little pointed satirical moments, right? Where he'll, he'll like seem to be saying something about our world. So with the, with, with the White Witch, she has a secret police and uh, it's, it's all very behind the Iron Curtain uh, sort of thing. But at the same time, she is a sorceress. With Miraz, yeah, it's it's a kind of suppression. It's a much more subtle suppression. Yeah, yeah. It's a much more, let's get rid of the old stories and forget all that. And suppression through education and suppression through curriculum control, if that is such a thing. Of like, yeah. all right, we're going to teach this new way. We're going to, this is what the history of Narnia mm -hmm. and wipes away all that the children did and all that Aslan has done. Yeah. Through subtler way than the white witch did yeah that's a great point and he has so much to say about education in this book and education plays a huge role and caspian luckily is educated well unlike the hero of the next story that we uh, that, that we'll read but but caspian first has a nurse who tells him the right kind of stories right tells him these you know in, in narnia they're not just fairy tales they're like the true history of narnia reality right? of, of narnia, yeah. yeah and then he gets a tutor notice he doesn't go to school lewis was not big on school but uh but he gets a tutor and tutors are pretty great and the tutor ends up being someone who confirms all this stuff you know not only sort of gives caspian practical ins and outs of his future job as king supposedly but also you know educates him about old narnia so uh, i love i love this moment when caspian tries to ask cornelius no men, or very few, lived in Narnia before the Telmarines took it, said Dr. Cornelius. Then who did my great-great-grandsisters conquer? Whom, not who, your highness, said Dr. Cornelius. Perhaps it is time to turn from history to grammar. Oh, please, not yet, said Caspian. I mean, wasn't there a battle? Why is he called Caspian the Conqueror if there was nobody to fight with him? I said there are very few men in Narnia, said the doctor, looking at the little boy very strangely through his great spectacles. For a moment, Caspian was puzzled, and then suddenly his heart gave a leap. Do you mean, he gasped, that there were other things? Do you mean it was like in the stories where there- Hush, said Dr. Cornelius, laying his head very close to Caspian's. Not a word more. Don't you know your nurse was sent away for telling you about old Narnia? The king doesn't like it. If he found me telling you secrets, you'd be whipped and I should have my head cut off. But why? asked Caspian. 
It is high time we turn to grammar now, said Dr. Cornelius in a loud voice. Will your royal highness be pleased to open Pulverulentus Siccus at the fourth page of his grammatical garden of or the arbor of accidents, pleasantly open to tender wits? After that, it was all nouns and verbs till lunchtime. He's getting these little seeds of things he's actually interested in, but it's within this larger context of him having to learn, um, you know, grammar. Dr. Cornelius is streetwise enough to know, I really want to tell this kid about who Aslan is, but I have to keep my cover. I love yeah. that when, they, when he does come out and tell Caspian, it's like in the tallest tower, apparently seven rooms between here and the, the nearest hallway, and there's mm -hmm. each room is locked, and there's like two stairways. So like Dr. Cornelius is a very wise teacher in the sense of like, I want to tell you, but we got to do this on the down low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, the other thing about this chapter is the supposed reason that he has for taking Caspian up there on the tower is that there's a conjunction, right, of, of two stars. Tonight I'm going to give you a lesson in astronomy. At the dead of night, two noble planets, Tarva and Alambil, will pass within one degree of each other. Such a conjunction has not occurred for 200 years, and your highness will not live to see it again, right? So this is the, this is the pretext that they have. And he even, even though time is like kind of important, he even pauses while he watches the two planets align before telling Caspian there. So it's it's really important to him that Tarva and Alambil are passing each other, right? Sort of saluting each other. It says, Dr. Cornelius said nothing for about two minutes, but stood still with his eyes fixed on Tarva and Alambil. Then he drew a deep breath and turned to Caspian. There, he said, you have seen what no man now alive has seen nor will see again. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And I think it's neat that later on when Caspian and the dwarves and Truffle Hunter meet the centaurs and they meet Glenstorm, who's this mm -hmm. st stargazer, yeah. he, he mentions the conjunction was important and it tells us that this is going to be a war. Like this is a new age coming yeah. to Narnia. It's not just like a cover Cornelius is using to try to get away and sort of have a quiet place to talk to Prince Caspian, but it actually is sort of a cosmic sign of what's coming, which is really neat. It certainly, obviously, it speaks to Lewis's interest in the planets, which was very much important both in his scholarship and in his fiction did you get any did you get any ransom trilogy vibes from this little tidbit kind of mainly okay so mainly the ransom trilogy reminds me of other work that lewis has done called uh called the discarded image where he talks about the medieval view of the universe and the sort of parts that the planets play like I see what he kind of articulates in the discarded image very much in the space trilogy. And I also see it very much here as well, um, that he's, and this is a medieval world, medieval-ish world, and yeah. he can't envision a medieval world without astrology. That's, that, that's just so important to the medieval mind. I love that image he uses in the space trilogy of this isn't just deep space. That's not a right word for it. This is high heavens. Like mm -hmm. it's alive. Mm -hmm. It's moving. There are dances of stars and constellations and astronomy is part of creation and it's actively showing us something. And yeah. I, I think you see that in this moment in Prince Caspian, very subtle tie down to the space trilogy. He tries to recover the medieval um, vision of planets as as intelligences, um, as as almost sort of beings, right? That's certainly the case here. It's certainly the case with the stars in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it's also the case in the in the space trilogy.
what should we say about the rest of Caspian's adventure that's that's told? Um, were, were there were there parts that really interested you uh, from his sort of wandering through the woods and being discovered by the uh, by Truffle Hunter and the dwarves? It's one of those classic fairy tale stories of wake up, sir. We have to get you out of here. You're not safe anymore. Go, mm-hmm. go. And in the middle of the night, fleeing the castle because uh, a new heir is born and he's on his way of course that classic sort of lost woods sort of picture of the sky is cracking in half of lightning and thunder he runs into a tree and of course it's a wonderfully sort of charming lewis way the characters that he meet are a badger and two dwarfs those three characters are such an interesting trio of lewis could have had him meet anybody he could have had casting run into the children he could have had him run into aslan himself you know he could have picked anybody but he picks these three particular characters why do you think that is what do you see when you see truffle hunter trumpkin and nickabrick that's a good question off the cuff I see them as types uh, that that Lewis is is kind of saying something about. He's using them to comment on like sort of types of attitudes that people have toward the past and toward the present. You have the dwarves who act, who are almost sort of stand-in for um, most kind of, I don't know, a lot of sort of modern humans who interpret just about everything politically in terms of power and what they can get, right? The kinds of power plays they can... I'm, I'm here for whoever can help the dwarves. I'll believe in anything yeah. and I'll believe in whoever can help my people out the best. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Which, I mean, I will say this for Nickabrick, he cares about his people, right? He doesn't just care about himself. That's something that is redeeming about Nickabrick, even if just about nothing else is. He's very eager to kill, which I can appreciate. Yes, he is. I can, I can appreciate that too. That's a, a, I'll put that in the positive oh, column. That's right. That's right. He's like pulls uh-huh. out his knife a couple times and they have to like sit yeah. on him. Yeah. I love that as a, as a defense too, against, against being knifed, like just sit on your attacker or, or someone else's attacker. Um, Trumpkin, who by the way, ends up being the dwarf that is telling the story, right? Trumpkin, seems to be a type of person who is very skeptical about things you know he's kind of the saint thomas of the of the bunch you know needs to see things with his own eyes in order to believe in them um so it's it's an honest scientific skeptical position towards things or at least materialist skeptical position uh a little bit like the great knock right who is who is lewis's tutor uh, and then truffle hunter is someone who has a much simpler faith right who because truffle hunter dwells on these old promises and these old stories he has a kind of wisdom that allows him to be more discerning actually than trumpkin or nickerbrick are i don't know i i I guess i see them just as uh if you want to go brothers k on it i i'd say truffle hunter is combination of dimitri and alyosha nickerbrick is uh smerdyakov and trumpkin is uh ivan as as far as like types they're interesting and i don't know how they all came to be living in the same den what kind of one ad did they find on narnia and craigslist where yeah. a badger who's really sort of conservative minded and believes the old stories shacks up with a red dwarf and a black dwarf and they get along pretty well but they're also constantly nagging at each other so i guess they yeah. are pretty typical roommates in that sense yeah nickabrick's probably always drinking nickabrick he get, it's your turn to do the dishes nickabrick oh man yeah exactly exactly yeah, and then he tries to knife you, you know, exactly. talks about how the dwarves are always, you know, being put upon and yeah, yeah, plays the victim card. Yeah, and it's interesting too, like when they go and 
gather support for their army. Trumpkin, there, there are a bunch of other dwarves like Trumpkin living together. And there are a bunch of other dwarves like Nickabrick living together. So yeah, it's just it's just odd that they would uh, end up living together and also having a badger live with them. Who so. knows exactly? There might be some medieval reference that we're just not getting here. Some great classic literary reference that C.S. Lewis is trying to point us to, but it's probably just got lost to time. And who knows now? The great epic story of two dwarves and a badger. And that's uh, right. When you understand that, the whole thing clicks together. That's but right. Until that's right. then, we're we're left to wonder yeah. dwarves and badgers both kind of dig right so there's like I, a there's a digging where they're trying to get down to old narnia oh um, there you go if You're you want to get there. super allegorical there you go i like it i think the clearest image you can make out of the dwarves and the badger are they're definitely three characters on a spectrum of belief you know you have truffle hunter who's like yep i'm on board i'm gonna believe aslan no matter what we beasts don't forget we beast are you know the sort of sense of like oh we remember i remember yes nothing's gonna shake me nothing's gonna shake my faith in aslan and then a little bit over the spectrum you have trumpkin in sort of the middle where he's like over time he learns to believe and he learns to sort of follow aslan's path but he doesn't easily believe he sort of has to see it before he believes it and then of course beyond that you have nickabrick he doesn't care what he believes he's just gonna do what he believes and he's just gonna hold on to his own personal convictions regardless of what happened yeah i think they probably all signed up on the same facebook marketplace housing ad and they just sort of showed up on the first day like a bunch of uh, freshman students and just sort of stuck together you know finding new roommates is hard so once you get in with a pretty decent pair of dwarves you just sort of stick with them i guess yeah trouble hunter is nothing if not patient and stubborn He's, he's probably the one sort of making peace between the two dwarves more often than not. Always threatening um, to like, you better calm down or I'm going to sit on your head. That's exactly. right. That's right. It's the one thing you have that you can use against a dwarf if you're a badger. Anything else you want to say about the chapters about Caspian gathering this army together, finding all these people who live in hiding um, or bad luck that they have fighting against Miraz's army. Yeah, totally. I think through through all of these early chapters, both with the children on the island and continuous into this part where Caspian is sort of gathering his community together, gathering his army together, there's so many examples of gracious leading. And for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, there's such a great picture of graciously leaning in and supporting one another as they sort of problem solve. It's like, okay, we're on an island. What do we do next? And there's so much debate and so much sort of like, well, let's catch gulls eggs. No, let's not do that. Let's try to catch crabs. Oh, wait, we don't have anything to catch crabs. Uh, let's try this. Let's try, you know, there's open discussion about problem solving. And uh, throughout that whole process, they're constantly looking out for each other and they're constantly being gracious and kind to one another. You see that picture continue with Caspian as he sort of gathers his followers. I love there's these little really sweet character moments where he meets the bulgy bears mm -hmm. and they take a long, and C.S. Lewis sort of abbreviates it. He's like, they take a long time to explain the story again. Because again, this is like the fourth time we've had this this tell this story over and over again. But they say they tell it finally to where the bears understand them and the bears offer Caspian honey. It's something like Caspian thought it would be polite to accept, but it took him a long time to get unsticky like that's sort of like there's these little yeah. sweet moments of caspian is gathering these sort of 
followers and these sort of community around him. There's little moments of him showing honor. Like when the squirrel runs to grab him a nut, Truffle Hunter reminds him of like, all right, it's polite not to look and see where squirrels hide Mm -hmm. their nuts. It's Mm -hmm. just like every little interaction is sort of like filled with or painted with these moments of politeness and honor almost. Like Caspian's gathering his troops and gathering his sort of followers, but it's very gracious and it's it's a it's beautiful picture by lewis yeah yeah no i think that's a great point and i like it's paralleled by the fact that the four children are all kind of getting along pretty well too well even when they don't like i think there's a couple moments where like Mm -hmm. tempers were close to flaring true true they they start getting hot and they get thirsty and they i remember being sort of surprised at how many adversities lewis throws at the children right out the gate like he strands them on a, a desert island and they don't have any food no water and they're arguing about like am i hungry am i thirsty all right we gotta get some firewood uh you know they yeah. find apples, but then they immediately get tired of apples like this. Yeah. It's almost like a survival story outright. And I think it's so Lewis, weird. Yeah, Lewis uses that in a really cool way. He shows them problem solving and getting frustrated with each other and stumbling sort of clumsy way. They still work it out and they still yeah. sort of figure out the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, you'd think there'd be more of an emotional payoff when Miraz finally bites it. If from the beginning, the children are facing Miraz rather than facing oh, that's interesting. a yeah. desert island, right? <laughs> like, like it's, it's such a windy, twisty way to do it. Um, and I think it probably robs him something in terms of emotional payoff when Miraz finally is killed. But of course, um, I don't think Lewis is terribly interested in pulling like a Mel Gibson movie villain thing with Miraz, right? Where you just like hate mm-hmm. the bad mm-hmm. guy so much you know like Miraz is just sort of uh he's he's kind of a pitiful villain he's kind of pathetic um, yeah and more, i think more it's so than the white witch well i think you're totally right and i think it reminds me of the line which in the wardrobe in the sense of when they kill the witch it's mm-hmm. not even peter who kills her it's it's of course it's aslan who comes in yeah. and saves the day in the same way peter doesn't defeat Miraz. Miraz sort of gets eaten by his own men in sort of a sabotage sort of treacherous way yeah which i know lewis loves writing villains that sort of collapse under their own mm-hmm. evilness. There's many examples of that in Lewis's writings. But yeah, I think Miraz yeah. is that great picture of villains almost don't need the hero to destroy them because they end up destroying themselves more yeah. often than not. Get back to your point, it would probably feel much different if the children seem to appear in Narnia right at the castle or right in Miraz's court. And mm-hmm. the whole book, they're struggling against Miraz. In a weird way, they they spend three-fourths of the book. They hardly even know who Miraz is. They're just they kind of wandering some, around. It's almost not man versus man. And then this book, the antagonist is sort of like the environment. It's one of those yeah. great environment versus character books. Instead no, of that's the weird episodes. thing about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 man versus nature for sure. Man and you'd think nature. you'd think it would be that way in the book where it was always winter but never Christmas, right? Like you think they'd be like, it was so cold and our feet were freezing and blah blah blah. You know, because like that's a big part of the. What the witch does, um, I mean, a little bit with Edmund when he's helping to pull that sledge. And in a certain sense, Miraz is totally the antagonist, obviously, and mm-hmm. the Telmarines are the antagonist. But in a bigger picture, if you try to take it all from the Heaven Seas perspective, it, it's totally sort of a survival. How are these four teenagers going to figure out how to survive in this wilderness?
one thing that's that's also interesting to me that that Lewis really um, highlights and I think does a good job of is kind of using Nick Nick as a foil for the rest of the rebellion, which is for a guerrilla warfare movement in the mountains. It's pretty moderate they're they're not just kind of embracing any path to victory nickabrick's like oh yeah there there's some ogres and hags i could introduce you to um and you know caspian says certainly not and and trouble hunter says i should think not indeed we want none of that sort on our side right so um so yeah, Nickabrick is Nickabrick is a total ends justifies the means mm-hmm. type, which has its benefits here and there. But like he carries that so strongly, he holds onto that so dearly that it it costs him in the end. Obviously, as we'll learn mm-hmm. later. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the other thing that I thought that that I think is is always really interesting about this book and Narnia in general is this idea that humans are, are kind of like the rulers of Narnia. That um, as Truffle Hunter says. You know, things were never right unless there was a human ruling Narnia, which is which is yeah interesting because they are, and this this is kind of of a piece with the like character of the revolution as as being like kind of very moderate. They're fighting for not some upstart that they're going to put on the throne, but they're fighting for the kingship of the person who is actually the correct king of the Telmarines, right? Yeah, it's it's not just a full revolution it's a restoration of a former yeah, kingdom That's absolutely so, that changes the whole character of the whole uprising yeah and it's um you know the the people that they're trying to overthrow are humans they're a, a big old group of humans that are there and kind of ruling unnaturally but at the same time they're trying to overthrow them with other people from their same group right so all they're really asking is to be able to live life and be out in the open talking beasts and 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 other sort of magical creatures while being ruled by a human who could arrogate a bunch of power to himself again and kick out all the magical beasts again but they they just seem you know the faithful old creatures of narnia seem just stuck on this idea that the the correct person to rule narnia is a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, which is yeah, so I think, odd. Yeah, yeah, you're totally, it is such an interesting train of thought. And it, it makes me think of that quote near the end of the book where Aslan is talking to Prince Caspian and he's like, do you feel, do you feel like you're up to the kingship? And Prince Caspian's like, like, I don't, honestly. He's like, well, that's good. That means you're on the right track. And then he goes into that great quote where he's, Caspian says, well, I wish I had higher lineage. And Aslan's like, you are a son of Adam and Lady Eve. That's enough honor to raise the head of every beggar and enough shame to humble the head of the emperor or something like that. Of the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this complex Christian idea of mankind of, yeah, there is so much value in it. And we rule and have dominion over creation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a complex complex relationship we have because yeah we have all the honor of being children and creations of god and having his sort of thumbprint on us but we also have that sinful nature of it's a mix of honor and shame being glorified but not fully glorified yeah so no, that's I, what made me think of that i think that's a great point yeah here's here's the quote you sir caspian said aslan might have known that you could be no true king of narnia unless like the kings of old you were a son of adam and came from the world of adam's sons and so you are
the, that story being of where the telemarines came from i love uh-huh. that they come from the south pacific because as i read through the book i mentally imagine them as like your typical north europeans medieval knights and stuff but really after learning that they're all from the south pacific i automatically have to reimagine them all as like maui from moana or something right they're all giants and Moans yeah but yeah they are pirates who landed on an island in the south seas just kind of pillaged forcibly right, yeah. took wives right so they are they are probably part south pacific islander and part you know if if the pirates were european pirates part european but possibly some other kind of pirate we'll just, right? we'll just say they were french it's easy to pick on that's right that's right yeah these french telmarines <laughs> that by the way is something that i had trouble not thinking about the whole time I was reading this because of the Norman conquest. Uh, because the the reason English is as jacked up as it is, is that um, around the year uh, 1066, England was conquered by a bunch of French-speaking Normans. They got rid of the aristocracy, put their own aristocracy in, in place. And so for a for a very long time, we, we had French-speaking rulers for, for several hundred years, um, which is why we got so much French in our language. But the resolution to that was not we kicked all the French out, all French-speaking people out. It's that they had causes for war with with the French people who were still living in France, right? So they suddenly got very nationalistic and started speaking English at court instead of French. And and so you still had the same, you know, this is where the name like William and Henry and all these names that we think of as English names, they all come from French names, which is sort of parallel to this, right? I mean, Caspian... Uh. All the Telmarines don't get kicked out. Caspian is, actually continues to rule. And presumably, like, any humans that you have in Narnia after this point are Telmarine, right? I, I mean, I don't, I don't oh, yeah. think... I don't think any that's a good point yeah. anyone else who's human would have been there it's it's just this kind of like rebalancing that happens which is exactly what the rebellion kind of wants to happen right not that not that we get rid of all the humans but we sort of change things around a little bit so there's sort of a new you know so the so the um, human ruler realizes that his country is a something's gone wrong in our telmarine history and we have to sort of uh reform or sort of yeah. uh, rejigger everything to the right way of aslan so yeah i think it, yeah. it's so fascinating yeah yeah, yeah. you can easily imagine the se- a, a sequel to lion the and wardrobe where okay the children are back in narnia and they gather up with a bunch of fawns and they gather up with a bunch of centaurs and they're gathering up with a bunch of uh, woodland creatures and they're gonna take down not the white witch but someone just like the white witch you know like you can sort of mm-hmm. see that as like a very basic sequel to Narnia, but this is so different and it's so, so much more complex that, yeah, it, it leaves you sort of like spinning in all your imagination that represents this or that. Yeah. It's just, it goes to show what, what depths C.S. Lewis pulled from. Yeah. That's about all we have time for this episode. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope you'll be back. And, yeah. Uh, in fact, I think you will. Uh, I'll be happy to be back. And uh, as I edit this ed- episode, um, we'll see where it turns out. This might be the quickest hour of uh, the Inkland's Variety <laughs> Hour ever. 
Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. Well, thanks so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, listeners. And next time, we'll really get into uh, what happens when the four children not enter a wardrobe so much, but enter the very frame of the story they've been listening to and influence events in Narnia that they've been hearing about. So stay tuned for that. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the Geeson fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.